Welcome to the Asbury First United Methodist Church Weekly Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast or other ways to connect, please visit asburyfirst.org. Before I begin this morning, I want to thank Stephen, the entire pastoral staff, and you, the people of Asbury First, for opening this pulpit to me again. This is a community of faith that will forever hold a deep place in my heart as the congregation that raised me and formed me in the knowledge and love of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It was among all of you that I sharpened and honed my practice of ministry. And though we may be separated by distance, as my partner and I live down in Virginia, this community will forever be my home. I also would like to share with you today that I began thinking about this message a few weeks before we all learned that Stephen, Emily, Ellie, Charlie, and Hannah's next chapter in their own ministry journeys would be beginning. Since then, this message, which is ultimately about our call to let go and embrace the unknown together, has taken on a more personal meaning for all of us as a congregation. And yet the truth of the gospel is that absolutely nothing, not time and not space, can ever break the ties that bind us together in God's love. That what God has brought together, nothing can tear asunder. And so with that moment of personal privilege out of the way, let's return to our text this morning, read so wonderfully earlier by Tim. But just to refresh ourselves and maybe hear God's voice speaking to us in a new way, I would like to share it with you again. This time coming from the hearts of the Translation Council of the First Nations Version an indigenous translation of the New Testament. So hear now the words of small man to the sacred families in the land of pale skins, chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the time was right, creator sent his son who was born of a woman and born under our tribal law. He came to set free the ones who were under the law so that all of us could take our place in Creator's family as mature sons and daughters. Because this is true of you, Creator has sent the the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out from within us, Abba, my Father. So then you are no longer slaves to the spiritual powers of this world that use the law to accuse you and bring you under bondage. You are now taking your place as mature sons and daughters, ready to share in the family blessing promised by the great spirit. Aha, may it be so. Will you pray with me? Wa 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 e mi mi. 
Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Almighty Spirit, come. Come, come, come. Amen. Picture it. Christmas, 1980. And boy, what a year it has been. A hostage crisis in Iran has been raging for over a year. Mount St. Helens erupted over in Washington state a few months ago, 53 dead and $3 billion in damages. Call Me by Blondie is the Billboard number one song of the year. We were introduced to the insatiable dot and cherry-eating, ghost-fleeing yellow video game character and his incessant waka 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 waka. Within days of each other, the Empire Strikes Back and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining were released in theaters. Can you imagine what that Barbenheimer campaign might have looked like? A month ago, former California governor and movie star Ronald Reagan won the presidency in an electoral college landslide, and he'll be inaugurated in just a few weeks. And in the midst of all of this, another former movie star and his friend decided to give their friends, their family, and neighbors bottles of homemade salad dressing mixed up in a giant vat with what could only be described as a giant canoe paddle in old wine bottles as Christmas gifts. Salad dressing for Christmas. I know, I know, it's the thought that counts, I guess. <laughs> but stay with me, because everybody who received a bottle would wind up coming back to their house, pounding on their door, and clamoring for more in the weeks to come. The dressing was that good. Over the course of the next two years, this former movie star, Paul Newman, would decide to go into business and sell this dressing under the label of Newman's own to the public. And in 1982, its first full year of operation, Newman's own would go on to rake a profit of over $300,000. When his family and friends asked him what he would do with all that money, Paul uttered five words that would become the company's slogan, let's give it all away. Let's give it all away. Since then, the Newman's Own Foundation has donated over $570 million to worldwide organizations that bring joy to children facing serious illness and advance children's nutrition security. An admirable mission and accomplishment to be sure, 41 years of giving it all away. 
not bad. I first heard this story a little over a month ago from science communicator, author, and YouTuber extraordinaire Hank Green. And ever since, I've really been captivated by it, by this idea of let's give it all away. And not just because my mom is in the process of packing up her entire downstairs to get ready for a major renovation, flabbergasted by all of this stuff we've managed to accumulate in that house over the past 32 some odd years. I'm sure that if we're being honest, she's not alone in that quandary. Let's just give it all away. No, I think it has more to do with the fact that 41 years ago, Paul Newman managed to sum up in five simple words what I have come to understand to be a core tenet of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's give it all away. This idea has come to be so fundamental to my own understanding of the Christian life that as I reflect back on the sermons and speaking engagements that I had over the past summer, I could probably have called the whole thing the let's give it all away tour. Probably not as fun as the eras or renaissance tours that were also going on this summer, but hey, I can promise you that Ticketmaster didn't charge you an arm and a leg for it either. And let me be clear, I'm not just talking about material wealth or possessions here. Although to also be clear, I'm also not not talking about material wealth or possessions here either. Rather, I believe that this call to give it all away goes far deeper than that. It goes to our very heart of our social orders and our social systems, walls that we've built up and maintain that keep us from the truth of our creatureliness, that no matter how much status or power or privilege we manage to accumulate for ourselves, we cannot escape the fact that we are and always will be dependent beings. This is the reality that Paul is speaking into as he's just laying into the church in Galatia from our passage this morning. Understand that at this point in his ministry, Paul is in a bit of a bind. The early church had been wrestling with a major question that had divided it clean in two. Thank God we've all progressed from such silliness. See, this early Jesus movement, followers of the way, as they would call themselves, had clearly Jewish origins. Jesus and his 12 disciples, after all, were Jewish, and their ministry was taking place in primarily a Jewish context. But it wasn't long before this early movement started to expand beyond its Jewish context and started to spread amongst the Gentiles, amongst everyone else in the Roman Empire. As far as anyone is, who mattered for our purposes was concerned, that was the clear, distinct 
binary. You were either Jewish or you were a Gentile. The Jews had their own customs and ways of doing things, and the Gentiles had their own custom and ways of doing things. And so the question that was dividing the early church as it started to take in all of these Gentiles was just how Jewish did these Gentiles have to become? Did Gentile Christians need to keep Sabbath? Did Gentile Christians need to follow kosher dietary laws? Did the Gentile Christian men need to be circumcised? Put simply, did Gentile Christians need to follow the teachings of Moses, the Torah, or not? For Paul, who was a Jewish Christian who saw himself first and foremost as an apostle to the Gentiles, that answer to that question was a clear and unequivocal no. It's not that the teachings of Moses were bad or wrong or false or anything like that. It's just that they did not impart righteousness in and of themselves. As Paul understood it, they pointed to righteousness imparted on all creation, Jew and Gentile alike, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And we could spend forever diving into and exploring the nuances of that distinction together, but that will have to wait for another sermon. For today, just know that for Paul, our salvation does not know, our salvation cannot come through any one of our individual actions or our own individual righteousness. For Paul, salvation comes through Christ's righteousness and Christ's righteousness alone. That's the message that he's been preaching all along throughout his ministry. That is the message that he had shared with nascent congregations throughout the Roman Empire, including the region of Galatia. And that is the message that all of these congregations were supposedly ordering their collective lives around. And so, of course, Paul is more than a little ticked off when some other preacher visits Galatia and tells them the exact opposite thing. That actually, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be a real follower of the way, you'll have to start keeping the Sabbath. You'll have to start keeping kosher. And yes, sorry, gentlemen, you'll have to circumcise yourselves. That would annoy Paul enough but what really set Paul over the edge was that the church in Galatia started to take this new message to heart, follow it, and order their collective lives around it. As far as Paul was concerned, if any one Gentile Christian wanted to follow the teachings of Moses in that way, that was fine. But to put it up as a requirement for others to join in the movement was way, way 
way over the line. And why was this intolerable for Paul? Because Paul knew that coming into the fold of the early church already meant giving it all away. Understand that the entire Roman social order was built on just one institution, the familias. As it happens, it's where we get the English word family from, but for our context, it's probably better to understand this word as household. That is, familias is not the nuclear family that we think about in our 21st century context. Two parents, two and a half kids, a dog, all living in a single plot of land in one dwelling place surrounded by a white picket fence. We know the, the image, right? Rather, the familias was much larger, consisting of parents and their children and their children's partners and their children, as well as any slaves and their slaves' partners and their slaves' children too. And they all live together in one household. Think La Casita from Disney's Encanto. These familias were also extremely hierarchical in nature, with everyone in the household existing to serve and give honor to the singular male head of the household, the potter familias. And in any given household, the potter familias was lord. Did someone close a good business deal in the market from the household? That brought honor to the potter familias. Did someone in the household accomplish a heroic feat in battle? That brought honor to the potter familias. Did someone get appointed to a prestigious political office? You guessed it, honor for the potter familias. Heck, did your steer breed with the neighbor's livestock and produce strong and sturdy calves? Even that brought honor to the potter familias. In Rome's patron-client economic social order, the honor that a paterfamilias had was as good as gold. And when the paterfamilias died, that title and all of the honor that he had accumulated throughout his life would pass on to the next in line, typically the next oldest son. In turn, it was the duty of the potter familias to ensure that all those within his household had all that they needed to live and flourish within the social order. As long, that is, as the members of your household continued to serve you and honor you through their actions. Because you see, the entire Roman social order, the entire Roman imperial social order could also be understood as one big familias, as one big household. And there was one singular male head of the household of Rome, the Caesar, the emperor, 
Throughout Rome, there was one Lord above all other lords, Caesar. And so you can understand why this upstart movement that had its origins in the outskirts of the empire, who worshipped a homeless, impoverished, itinerant preacher who was brutally tortured and executed on a Roman cross and proclaimed that in actuality, that man, Jesus, was Lord, not Caesar, might not well be received by the powers that be. Proclaiming the lordship of Jesus meant denying the lordship of Caesar, and that would not bring honor to your household. That would not bring honor to your paterfamilias. And that, in turn, could close off potential business dealings in the market or upward mobility for your household or political appointments. And so it wasn't uncommon for the paterfamilias to completely cut out any members of his household who started to experiment with this new Christianity thing. Becoming a follower of the way, joining that early first century church meant giving everything up. It meant giving up your social security. It meant giving up your safety net. It meant giving up your place in your household. It meant giving up your inheritance. And Paul was keenly aware of this reality. And I think it's why our passage this morning is so rich with familial imagery. For early Christians who gave up all they had to join this movement, their church became their new familias. Their church became their new household. And as it happened, their church had one paterfamilias too. And that paterfamilias was the crucified and risen Christ, a paterfamilias unlike any other in Rome, a paterfamilias who did not come to be served, but to serve, a paterfamilias who did not hold on to the power and privilege he had from being equal with God, but rather emptied himself, becoming nothing, and gave up all that he had to dwell among us, to be born of a woman as a true human, not the son of a king and a queen, but that of an unwed teenage mother and a day laborer, not in a palace bedchamber waited on by maids and servants, but in a dirty, messy feeding trough and visited by farmhands and shepherds in the field. That's who their paterfamilias was. That's who our paterfamilias is. Our paterfamilias offers us no material inheritance. 
Our Potter Familias offers us no individualized safety or security. Our Potter Familias has already given it all away for the sake of breaking down the walls that separate us from each other. That's what I tell my students just about every week, that through Christ, we have been given the greatest gift of all. We have been given the gift of each other. We have been given the gift of looking upon our neighbors and seeing the face of Christ. That's our inheritance as members of the household of God. And the good news, friends, is that to claim it, we only have to do one simple thing. We have to let go. We have to let go of everything that we're holding on to that keeps us from fully embracing and loving our neighbor as they are. We have to let go of everything that we're holding on to that keeps us isolated in our own safe and secure four walls so that we can live in beloved community with our neighbors. We have to let go of a vision of the past that never was so that we can embrace and tell a healing and honest story. We have to let go of the idea that we alone are right so that we can embrace and learn from the God-given wisdom that exists all around us. For 2,000 years, this is what Paul has been screaming to us through our holy scriptures, that I am not the source of my own salvation, thank God. Instead, my salvation comes through the one who gave it all away and beckons me to do the same for the sake of a weary world in need of that good news too. Because not a lot has changed since Christmas 1980. It's Christmas 2023, and we're looking back on a year that has been hard, and looking ahead at a year that promises to be even harder, full of unknowns and struggles in our life together as a country, a denomination, and yeah, as a congregation. Genocide continues to be waged against Palestinians living in Gaza with military equipment bought and paid for with our public funds and no ceasefire is in sight. We're entering an election year that promises to, once again, be the most important and most contentious election of our lifetimes. And right here at home, on Christmas Eve, a Rochester Police Department officer shot and killed Todd Novick one of our neighbors during a foot pursuit. We cannot afford to stay isolated. We cannot afford to keep following the same patterns and expecting different results. So maybe in 2024, 
we can try something new. Let's give it all away. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Asbury First Weekly Sermon. If you enjoyed this message, please visit asburyfirst.org and learn more about our mission to love God and neighbor, live fully, serve all, repeat.